0: Robert Kunzman, thank you so much, man, for joining me here today. I got to say, I've done this before where I've asked listeners for questions. And this was easily, uh, I think, the most questions I received back. So we've got a lot of stories, a lot of feelings, and a lot of questions from the listeners of this show around the topic of homeschooling. So I could not be more excited because I think we're going to we're going to really be able to address so much of that if maybe not all of them we'll do our best i mean i think i sent you a good 25 <laughs> questions but i think we'll get to most of them and i'm very grateful for your time great i'm looking forward to it so i think there's a quote from this recent co-published kind of comprehensive look at the research uh, that you and a co-author published that i think would be a good way to kind of set the conversation up in terms of the kind of attitude that we're going to that we that you think people should have And that I think we should have as well, quote, public dialogue and political decision making about homeschooling should not be guided by either advocacy based research or isolated anecdotes, the latter of which anecdotes tend toward the extremes of self-taught geniuses or children locked in cages, end quote. So, yeah, I think of like the Tara Westover book educated you know you think of these kind of popular examples of extreme harm and then you also think of the yeah the mit kid who graduates at 15 or whatever and you're kind of saying like yeah those exist but they're like way on the extremes let's let's just be smart and look at the data and talk about mostly what's going on in the middle. Am I understanding that right? I think that's right. And I I think one of the challenges,
1: uh, perennial challenges for homeschool research, and and maybe one of the reasons why anecdotes carry so much weight is that we really don't have a lot of comprehensive data, in part because we oftentimes don't know who's homeschooling. Right.
0: First of all, there's just the fact that it's not It it, it almost never requires the same sort of official documentation that public school attendance would, for instance. But then there's also the self-selection fact that some portion – and again, probably hard to know exactly how many – but some percentage of homeschooling families are self-selecting into a lifestyle where they are very particularly not – trying not to be connected to official bureaucracy and governmental norms, perhaps out of fear or isolationism or whatever the motivations are, right? Right.
1: Absolutely. And, and I think there's another couple of really big methodological complications as well. One is that a lot of homeschoolers move back and forth. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, we we oftentimes have this view of the homeschool family that starts from age four or five or six, and they go all the way through. But, but in actuality, that's, that's not the typical uh, approach. And not only that, Believe it or not, more homeschoolers than not actually are doing what we call flexi-schooling, and they're actually availing themselves of institutional schooling concurrently right. while they're homeschooling. Right. So, so to draw conclusions about the effects of homeschooling becomes almost an impossible puzzle.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. I suppose you could take the purest form of it or something like that and compare it, but that won't actually, that wouldn't cover most students then. I went to Christian school all through junior high and high school, and we had some students who came two days a week that were partially homeschooled. Other friends of mine who were what we might call fully homeschooled, nonetheless had co-ops and various parents would teach classes that they were more qualified for than the other parents at at the high school level, right? So, you know, we had my friend's dad who like was one of the inventors of JavaScript language teaching math. And, you know, it's like, well, pretty, pretty damn qualified. <laughs> and like that friend I'm thinking of, you know, worked for the Justice Department and now is uh, on the partner track at a huge law firm in San Francisco. So anyway, we're going to we're going to get to all that. I don't need to vamp here. Let's start with just the broadest possible umbrella what are the general types or categories of homeschooling?
1: I, I would say, I mean, again, it really depends on who's counting and who's who's categorizing. Typically, uh, historically, at least, there's sort of been two major uh, strands recognized, and, and really homeschooling in the 60s and 70s emerged from these two strands, sort of modern American homeschooling. One is sort of the the lefty, uh, hippie, countercultural, secular Mm -hmm. approach. Uh, And then the other is the, uh, you know, conservative Christian that that really, as time went on into the 80s and 90s, in large part because of their organizational structure and and sort of ideological determination, became the the preeminent voice for homeschooling. Um, But I think that what we're finding as time has moved on into the new century, that Uh, the movement has diversified. And while certainly uh, groups such as the Homeschool Legal Defense Association, which is the the voice for many conservative Christian homeschoolers, uh, certainly they remain uh, the dominant voice. They are are not the only organization, and plenty of homeschoolers have no interest in in
0: those sort of ideological battles uh, and are doing it for very different reasons. In the 60s and 70s, what did those two wings share, the, the hippie counterculturalists and the more kind of uh, conservative Christians? What do you think was motivating them that was overlapping to do this homeschooling thing? That's a great question. I, I would point to sort of an anti-institutional
1: uh, approach for obviously different reasons and right. a, a real emphasis on the primacy of parents and making decisions about the education of their children. Uh, and, and I think that obviously those took very different forms and, and resulted in different pedagogy and curriculum. Uh, but those I think were, were strong undercurrents in both movements.
0: Now, most of your research has been on the kind of conservative evangelical type of homeschooling. And that's good because that is what most of the questions were about. And, uh, you know, given my listenership, that makes sense, right? So let's kind of start to hone in a little bit on that, on that main type. What would you say the primary motivations have been and are for conservative Christian parents to want their kids to be homeschooled? So
1: thinking uh, more broadly first, uh, the the best data we have are from the National Center for Education Statistics, and they do a survey every four years, and they ask in part about motivations for homeschooling. And the most common motivations are concern about school environment, uh, concern about uh, academics, uh, and then the desire to provide uh, moral or religious instruction, and so I would say quite you know reasonably that the conservative Christian arm of that is going to be the one that certainly occupies most of the motivation around religious instruction, although not right. entirely. Uh, there are other religiously motivated homeschoolers, but I think the other one that comes through in a lot of the qualitative research around conservative Christian homeschooling that isn't reflected in this national survey, because there isn't a category for it, is a real focus on making family the center of daily life and strengthening Mm. family bonds. Uh, And this idea that I I think comes through in in the idea of concern about school environment, but what you might almost call it an educational protectionism. Some
0: scholars have used that term. Educational protectionism. That's a good term. That does a lot of work.
1: Yeah, and it and it comes in also, uh, in, in particular, with motivations for racial and ethnic minority uh, homeschoolers who right. see it as an and, and that may be something we'll talk about as well. But as a as a um, as a way to provide a a different and more supportive uh, learning experience for their kids.
0: Yeah, I mean, so one thing that's interesting in what you said, the the big sort of global findings are is that. School environment and academics can't come before moral and religious instruction. Now, obviously, if we like you're saying, if we just separated out the conservative Christians, maybe it would come second, maybe it would come first and not third. But it seems to me that there is a continuum here because, for instance, my mom tried to homeschool me in kindergarten and I think I uh, was not good at it or she was one of a she's she's an elementary school teacher. So she's good at it. That can't be the reason. So something about it, I, I, she's told me before, but I forget. It didn't go well, and I went to the public school then for the second half of kindergarten through fifth grade. And then when I was going to go to junior high, public junior high, I had had kind of a rough time in elementary school, and I was I was bullied a lot, not nothing extreme and severe, but I, I was on the social margins and I just had not had a good time. And they decided to send me to a small private Christian school starting in sixth grade. And I would say that their cons- main concern was so- school environment. That's what they – my parents were not fundamentalists. I, listeners know this. My dad's a therapist. My mom tells swear word jokes. They're, they were evangelicals, but it wasn't like they were really worried about indoctrination, although there was some you know, evolution stuff and whatever here and there. But it was mainly Daniel, what they call me, Daniel's having a hard time. And like, this will be better for them. And they were right. It was better for me. I flourished in Christian schooling uh, socially. I got into music and got in bands and stuff. And it really was better. And you also talked about a lot of people do regular school a couple days. Maybe they go to a Christian private school or something like that, and then they're home. And I had a question that was slated for later that I'd like to put in here from Seth, who said, what are the differences between homeschooling and small private Christian schools Generally speaking, because this seems to be part of that continuum.
1: Well, I, I don't think that there's any one definitive answer to that. I think a, a lot yeah. of it has to do with the the shape of the homeschooling. I mean, some homeschoolers run, some parents run their homeschool much like an institutional school, conventional right. school. You know, they've got uh, the daily schedule, and they gather around the kitchen table, and they've got the workbooks, and they do you know turn things in and. You know, to that extent, there may be a lot of structural similarities in terms of the learning process, although family size would also matter in terms of whether or not you have much interaction with peers, um, whether there's any, you know, quote unquote, larger group discussion, things like that. I think that the other variable would be how involved a homeschool family is in the broader uh, community, whether they have a, a learning cooperative they're a part of, as you mentioned earlier, you know, what they see as. Ah, uh, sort of the broader scope of the educational experience. So, so I think it could resemble, uh, you know, a private Christian school in a lot of ways. Certainly, in, in terms of curriculum, it could. I mean, many yeah. homeschoolers uh, use a similar uh, curriculum.
0: Yeah, my my schooling used uh, a Becca curriculum, which was a homeschooling curricula uh, curriculum. So we and I have had uh, some funny. And slightly disheartening experiences of purchasing some of those old books on eBay and leafing through them as an adult. But I guess that's what I'm saying. In my mind, the lines do get kind of blurred there. And I think that that's what Seth was sort of getting at as well.
1: I mean, you could also, though, have a a homeschool environment. And and, and this tends to happen uh, with homeschool parents. and, And it's almost always mothers who do the instruction. They, quote unquote, loosen up as time goes on. Uh, Mm. Their homeschooling less and less resembles conventional schooling structures as they gain more confidence uh, and comfort with the material and how they want to do things and they customize it. So I think as time goes on, it might be less likely that it would uh, resemble what you'd find in a a private Christian school.
0: But speaking of curriculum, you know, uh, I'm sure you've looked at a lot of this curriculum that is common in these uh, in the evangelical homeschooling world. What do you tend to find there? What What are the salient differences uh, between those and what you'd see in a public school?
1: Well, I think that the most obvious one and, and the most expected one would be the way in which you know Christian values and principles are are woven into almost every, if not every, aspect of the curriculum.
0: That that rings true. <laughs>
1: Yeah, even math examples, you know, drawn from religious stories or what have you
0: word problems and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. So and I I think that reflects, uh, you know, a conservative Christian conviction, typically that all of this is part of God's kingdom and matters. uh, Mm. And that learning is essentially not to be distinguished from faith and belief uh, in that regard. So I think that that's a common occurrence in most of the the curriculum. And I think, you know, as you mentioned, there are certainly more or less attention paid to certain subjects right they may pay attention to evolution but typically it's to point out the ways in which they feel it's wrong
0: yes that's what that was the evolution uh, learning that i got was uh there are no transitionary fossils and uh how is it possible for with entropy for you know these kind of creationist counter arguments was what it was in the textbook
1: that's right. Yeah. So so interestingly enough, you know, in some of the research that, that I did qualitatively spending time with families, they would assert that, you know, they, they did teach evolution, uh, contrary to, you know, outsider's expectation. But obviously, the more that I talk with them about it, it was clear there was a certain narrative being promoted about it. In contrast, something like, you know, health, sex ed, you might find little to nothing in that regard, uh, right. or certainly a very different framing of that than you'd find in a Uh, you know, secular curriculum.
0: Here's a question. that I I truly don't know the answer. What about like nationalism or even a Christian? So there's Christian nationalism, which of course would not be in a secular textbook, sort of like, you know, they, in, in high school, we read this book, the, the light and the glory, which basically argued that God won the revolutionary war for America by bringing a, a well-timed fog bank. That's literally an argument. The book made Uh, sounds like you're familiar with this book. And so, there, so there's Christian nationalism. I'm interested in that. But I'm also interested in just like the more general nationalism, like, you know, the the valorizing of various predominantly white historical figures and sort of the downplaying of the massacre of Native Americans. Do you and I, this may be beyond your sort of your realm as a scholar, but do you have a sense of the boundaries and, and the norms there?
1: I would say my sense is, is largely anecdotal as we as we broaden that question, but but certainly I think that 's a fair generalization uh, for a lot of these curriculas that nationalist theme extends even beyond sort of narrowly religious tones uh, mm-hmm. and, and and I think they go hand in hand oftentimes in terms of the, the notion of American destiny and
0: Oh, just yeah. In 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 point of historical fact, often nationalism is Christian nationalism in America, right?
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. So so I, I think that there are plenty of textbooks, particularly when yeah, obviously when you're exploring social studies and civics and government, that are definitely far to the right, but not all of them. You know, there there yeah. is a mix, as there is for almost everything in homeschooling, even in in you know Christian informed homeschooling.
0: It's it's interesting to look back through some of the Becca stuff, because I believe that's out of Bob Jones University. Is that right? Yes. Yes. And and Bob Jones, uh, people who know the history of the moral majority. Basically, the beginning of the moral majority was the lawsuit between Bob Jones and the United States government when they tried to restrict interracial dating relationships among their students in the 1970s, I think. So. It's It was interesting. Like that's the soup that these books came from. Now, they didn't come from the 70s, but they came 15 years later or so from the same school uh, and that community. And, you know, I, I went back through and, and read some of the stuff on Native Americans in one of the books that came. And in some sense, I didn't see as much – as many red flags as I anticipated. But there were some interesting things like this, this tribe of Native Americans was – peaceful and respected God. And that's why they weren't wiped out by, you know, like there was some very weird kind of loose application of like Old Testament logic to people groups, you know, in, in this kind of messy way. It, it was, it was very weird. It was weird to read that as an adult. Like is a, Be- maybe you could answer, maybe this is the question, a that that kind of stuff. Are they like pretty typical are they to the right of some of the other homeschooling stuff have they even changed in the last 20 years i'm curious about all of that yeah i wouldn't be able to speak to
1: the change uh i don't i don't track yeah. the
0: curriculum closely enough to to comment Pro- on probably that probably wise honestly
1: that, that might be crazy <laughs> making work right there i mean i will say that i've i've certainly read you know texts that are to the right of that uh okay. and and uh, you know, my colleague, Milton Gaither, uh, who is um, someone that I do a lot of work with and who's published widely on homeschooling, particularly the history of homeschooling, uh, has written a lot about the Christian Reconstructionist movement and right. uh, the ways in which those narratives uh, find themselves, uh, find their way often into homeschooling material. And and that's some pretty far right material in yeah. terms of, uh, you know, Old Testament law being applied and things like that. So, right. So you get that type of literature and philosophy in some of the material. And then, you know, you, you get also, I would say, you know, themes of God's providence more to, you know, more moderate types of narratives uh, that might be almost what you'd find in maybe, you know, 1950s secular textbooks. Uh, right. You know, oh, that's a good it. So point. they run the gamut.
0: Yeah. Kind of in, in the middle of that sort of, civic religion consensus of the mid-century, where pretty much everybody is like a Methodist or something. You know, all presidents have been Christians and, you know, all that kind of thing. So, okay, that's interesting. I'm curious, is there ever research done on the kids themselves, either when they are kids or as adults later on looking back? I mean, obviously, it makes sense to primarily interview the parents who are deciding to do the homeschooling and their motivations and all that. But what do we see in the research on the actual children?
1: Well, that's a great question. It's certainly an area that is understudied, and and part of that it's just you know human subjects protocols around access to children and
0: right. It is much harder to study children just in general, right?
1: Sure, yeah. And I think obviously for for reasons that are understandable, many homeschool parents aren't really keen to have a you know <laughs> uh, university yes. professor come in and and hang out with their kids right. when they're not there or whatever, um, right? So that that is a barrier, but there are there are certainly plenty of studies that are, for instance, draw from data sets around oh, the uh, National Survey for Youth and Religion or other other large scale surveys that look at adolescent behavior, beliefs, things like that. So so we, we get some broad scale. And then there are certainly qualitative studies where researchers right. such as myself would go in and spend time with families and, and
0: not only talk with parents, but oftentimes get a chance to to observe and talk with, with kids. What are some takeaways from the, the times that we do get research like that?
1: Well, one of the big questions that that comes up in that regard is around socialization. Um, yeah. And, and I, I would say, I mean, there's certainly a stereotype of sort of the maladjusted homeschooler, the isolated homeschooler. And, and that exists. And, yeah. 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 And that exists and it happens. But I would say that, that on the whole, the, the research does not suggest a huge uh, problem there. Uh, widespread, you know, it's, it's a mixed bag. I think that that there are some studies that, you know, suggest areas where homeschoolers may have more challenges when they transition into uh, college or t- to public school. Uh, but but another other set you know other uh, ways they they bring strengths. And even amongst those generalizations, there are a lot of counterexamples. So so yeah. I think that that the socialization question the again, I mean, one of the issues, there's a couple issues, at least at play here. One is simply a question of what constitutes desirable socialization. And plenty of homeschool parents will say that's not the kind of, you know, kid I want my kid to become. So I'm not trying to create a typical public school kid. Right. But I think also there's the, you know, the confounding factors I mentioned earlier about all the other influences uh, that exist in terms of Contact outside of the home, oftentimes taking classes outside of the home, moving back and forth between homeschooling and conventional schooling so so it's really tough to make any generalizations, uh, certainly causality uh, you know claims around the effect of right. homeschooling on socialization. In fact, I think the the biggest takeaway that we have and I, and I know this connects with some of the, the questions that your listeners had parents' religious commitments it seems clear are far more significant in shaping the religiosity of their children than the method of schooling, that it doesn't, it matters far less whether they're homeschooled, public school, private school as a variable compared to the religiosity of the parents.
0: And interesting. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, so, and we find the same thing actually with academic achievement that the variable of Parental education and family
0: background is far more pivotal than uh, the the mode of schooling for academic achievement. So that's really interesting. But I would assume that there are correlations then between religiosity, either levels levels and directionality, right, and prevalence of homeschooling, right? So uh, a more religious and more conservatively religious family is more likely to homeschool. I mean, does that show up?
1: I'm not aware of any broad scale research that that tracks that or measures that. Um, Yeah. So I I wouldn't know. I mean, I think there's you could imagine that to be the case, Uh, certainly to the extent that certain strands of of conservative uh, religious belief would be more committed towards sort of isolationist protectionist Mm -hmm. orientation to the world. That that would probably be reasonable. But but I haven't seen any hard data.
0: So, I mean, you, you just dropped kind of a big bombshell here for, in terms of, you know, maybe even how I need to rephrase some of these questions. So, which is, which is good. I mean, I, I want to know the truth, you know. Uh, so, the religiosity of the parents, basically in, in statistical terms, it explains more of the variance than the type of schooling for all these different outcomes. And you were saying that that's academic outcomes, that's social. Can you go through the list of the, the type of outcomes that that applies to again?
1: Yeah, it's it's more related to social. Uh, okay. The the academic outcomes are more family background, SES, um, okay, things of that nature. Okay. Yeah. So you know wh- when they look at uh, you know the National Survey of Youth and Religion looks at things like you know one of your uh, listeners had asked about you know early marriage. You know, does that correlate with homeschooling? Right. And actually, it correlates more with with uh, you know parents' religious commitment than than the mode of schooling. And uh, again, the ways in which homeschoolers choose to, I guess, engage with the world more broadly, but also in particular, the the ways in which their faith commitments continue f- from childhood into adulthood is, again, more of a function of the parent's religiosity than whether they were homeschooled or not.
0: Well, then my next question for you is, what's your level of felicity with the data <laughs> expertise around the religiosity research then, if that's going to be you know, if that's going to basically be a stand in or, or a lot of these questions are going to be about, you know, what are the effects of homeschooling? Right. You you know, you I've sent them to you earlier and where I think a lot of the answer is going to be, well, there's some effect, but there's a greater effect around the religiosity of the parents. Like, are these like overlapping realms of research? They, they sound kind of separate to me. They are. They're they're not. uh,
1: It's not the work that I do directly. Um, You know, the the studies that I'm familiar with, like I said, draw from this this national survey. But but the quantitative expertise uh, necessary to to uh, dissect it further is is beyond me.
0: Yeah, it's a different area of study. Well, that's fine. So that's maybe just a good caveat, though, to have in mind that it's not that there are no effects of the all these questions we're going to get to for homeschooling but if you're wondering about effects we should just keep in mind that actually usually it's like how religious your parents are is a more of a determiner than whether or not they elect to homeschool you basically
1: right and 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 again with with academic achievement uh you know the variable of family family background is
0: is more significant than and there yes right yeah yep okay well With that caveat in mind that we're talking about sort of smaller effect sizes, we're talking about less of an effect than maybe some of us may have assumed. Uh, One of these, you know, big motivations for these parents is to keep their kids in the faith, so to speak. You know, raise a child in the way he should go and he will – I can't quote the verse, but that's the one that often gets quoted, right? That there is a kind of a proportional relationship between – how you raise your child and the chances that they remain in the faith. And that's, it's just worth noting here, Jim Wellman, who is a very liberal UW religion researcher, is a friend of mine and he's been on the show. This is one of his criticisms of mainline Protestants is that they actually neglect to do this. They don't don't do it enough. And then they wonder why their kids aren't coming to church anymore. So there's obviously some aspect of that that is like commonsensical that, yes, you raise them a certain way. But there's obviously a particular interpretation of that verse that is a lot more involved. It's maybe controlling more aspects of what a child is exposed to. So Ryan's question is like, is it effective? does Does it seem to work? He says anecdotally, it seems like so many of them boomerang out and leave evangelicalism. I, I think he means in the way that the trope of like, you know, the sheltered college kid gets to gets to college and just like starts partying and having sex a ton because he was so sheltered. Right. It's like that kind of an effect.
1: Yeah. Well, I I tend to come at this question, which is one that that certainly interests me, come at it more from a, a philosophical uh, lens than a psychological one, and, and okay. thinking about questions around personal autonomy, and questions around you know what does it mean to help a, a young person to learn to think for him or herself, and and so I think that one of the central dynamics that that I've observed amongst uh, homeschool uh, youth, thinking about adolescence in particular, is. You know, that question around what type of room is there to move uh, intellectually, mm-hmm. uh, what type of opportunity is there to question, and, and probably not surprisingly to many of your listeners, I think the, the less room there is to do that at home, oftentimes, uh, at some point, that's going to happen. And so, yeah. you know, talking with, you know, it's interesting, I, you know, every parent, every homeschool parent that I talked with in my research told me they wanted to help their child learn to think for him or herself. The question becomes, what does that look like? Oh, and what do they think that, how do they define that, right? Exactly, right. So, so you know, that matter of uh, perception and reality and how the child experiences it varies widely. Mm-hmm. And uh, and therefore, I think that, you know, those, those outcomes in terms of eventual, you know, long-term commitment uh, to a religious tradition or religious beliefs varies widely as well
0: what you're what you're saying sits well with an emerging theory that I have as I look at deconstruction sort of type situations faith deconstruction this this podcast being of course kind of broadly in that world, and it's just that like the more it, it's commonsensical i mean <laughs> I'm not brilliant for coming up with this or anything but the the more constricted your environment is, in other words the The more elaborately constructed your house of cards, the more cards will fall when one falls and the more violent feeling your deconstruction will be, the more likely you are to lose relationships with close people in your life and the more moderate you are raised and the fewer, the smaller house of cards you have that's built on, it's on top of some bricks over here, you know, or whatever, however you want to do it, then the less violent your deconstruction will be, or maybe you don't even have to do any, maybe you just rethink some things. And it doesn't ever reach that threshold of what other people would consider sort of a traumatic deconstruction experience.
1: Right, right. Yeah, I think I think that that certainly makes sense within the homeschool context, or, or really any, you know, child rearing context, uh, you know, right. as you suggest, I think that, you know, the the, the other side of that coin is, as uh, your colleague uh, mentioned that there can be such a negligible house of cards in the first place that, that you don't, uh, you know, you don't end up Committing to anything, right? right, or nothing seems of of great enough value, and so right. you know, parents, that's that's their ultimate task and challenge is try to, I, from my perspective, right, is to try and find that middle ground, uh, yeah, to way, give them a foundation.
0: The way that I would think about that is like, you know, I don't want my son to have any houses of cards other than the kind of usual ones for being a child, right, and. Maybe he'll believe in Santa for a while you know he'll he'll have some sort of magical beliefs around that stuff that is common, but in order to avoid having a house of cards that falls on him later, i don't want to go the other direction and just have build no structures at all. I would just like to build a better structure that's a, a more humble and like smaller maybe and makes fewer grandiose claims about. The, the future of global political events based on a reading of Revelation, you know, like fill it in however you want, like a, a more modest one, but not no structure like he's going to get a structure. I mean, you also could just say he's going to get a structure from us anyway. The question is, what is it going to be made of? Right. So, well, and, and I think that the other piece that I, I don't know how
1: old your son is, but uh, he's one. He just Oh, one. OK. Yeah. So so a little ways away from adolescence.
0: Thank God! Is, yes, <laughs> I got time there, to prepare there, for that.
1: Exactly. There, there is certainly a point at which uh, one's peers' voices become a lot more important than one's parents. Of course. And so, I think that there is an understandable anxiety amongst all parents, uh, but certainly, you know, conservative Christian parents that their voice will be drowned out. And so, how to, you know, set that set that foundation so that there is sufficient you know, resource beyond the emotional social pull of one's friends uh, to sustain oneself during that
0: time. Right. Well, so talking about you mentioned that academic outcomes tend to have more correlation with, for instance, socio socioeconomic status. But this person, Gary, is wondering if there are differences in in outcomes for the conservative evangelical school versus the lefty, hippie, School and then he he also posits a third school, which i don 't know you could maybe use this as an opportunity to talk about this as well and if this came up in a few questions there's there 's like a a really academically motivated that 's not ideological right it 's just um, and I feel like some of my friends maybe had some of this element where it 's like no, we just like think that public schools are like not that great, and we don 't really want to spend twenty thousand dollars a year for this college prep. So like, we're smart. We'll just like give you a really good education. You'll have a bunch more free time. So that's like, is that like a third has, is that a a third school that emerged on its own kind of,
1: I I would say, I I don't know if I would put it on the same level Mm -hmm. category, but I think one of the things that, that I didn't say earlier that I think is really important to underscore about sort of identifying motivations for homeschooling is that, that there is certainly a what we sometimes call a situational pragmatic set of motivations Uh, and it Mm. could be uh, something related to the options available for a public or you know conventional school but it could be something going on with the family it could be any sort of life event It could be a pandemic Uh, and and then I think the other key point to underscore is that motivations we find shift over time. And oh, so what motivation for instance a family a parent may have to start homeschooling may be very different than what right. they have to continue or to stop whatever. Right. So so it, these are these are certainly tough things to pin down but you know the example that you used of of sort of a you know very well educated you know set of parents who make this decision it's probably pretty understandable that that would likely be more likely to have a positive outcome in terms of academic achievement, right. um, you know, w- we certainly know that the, you know, within the public school context, that factors outside of school are, are more important than factors inside school in terms of student uh, achievement and, and their right. experience.
0: That's the old trope of, is everything okay at home, Bobby? Because <laughs> actually, that would be the most likely scenario, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. And all the advantages and resources
0: that some families have
1: Right. Uh, that you know, tilt the uh, uh, the scale in their favor, uh, right. regardless of what school they happen to attend or not attend.
0: Right. Yeah, that's interesting. As you know, try I tried to acknowledge myself as basically the recipient of all of those privileges at every stage of my life. There are real, real differences there, uh, and it and it really matters for uh, life outcomes. And the the research is very clear on that in every single social science field. Here's a uh, paraphrased question. From Jake, what's known about homeschool kids going into STEM fields being underprepared by their homeschool curriculum, you know, evolution denial, science skepticism, et cetera? Is there any data on that? We don't have a lot of comprehensive data. There there is sort of an anecdotal or maybe small scale
1: qualitative theme of homeschoolers tending to be better prepared in verbal tasks yeah. and skills uh, than mathematical, but it's certainly not a across the board. I mean, we, there are certainly plenty of anecdotal stories of, you know, math whiz, homeschool kids and things like that. But, you know, I think that that perhaps one of the reasons for that, uh, a couple of the reasons uh, that we suspect, one is, is that a lot of times homeschoolers love to read and they spend a lot of time reading books um, oh, in their home so and they've got... Right. So that that tends to uh, encourage that they've got a lot less structure and more time to do that, uh, and then also mothers, you know, as I said, are the are the ones who typically are are doing
0: the instruction, but parents have less comfort teaching math, right? Um, and hard sciences and stuff, I'm assuming, is the same thing, right? Biology and yeah, and chemistry. I mean, chemistry is completely lost on me. I mean, I even in high school, I, I got through it in high school. Thankfully, never had to take it in college you know i couldn't tell you anything about the periodic table well so that's interesting that they tend to be big readers so any deficit that they might have let's say from their high school science education or math math would be harder but science could maybe be made up if you're a reader also like how much info does one actually absorb in high school right like if i had gone into like when i i was a philosophy major right I had read some thoughtful novels in high school that sort of prepared me to read philosophy, but I basically never read philosophy before. I imagine if I was a pre-med undergrad, it's not like I'm recalling all the AP chem stuff in clear. Maybe that is what it's like for people who are scientifically minded and it's different than the humanities. But if you're a good student and you're and you're interested in your field, it's like, oh, I was told the wrong thing about ev- evolution, but like a few hours with a textbook would, could remedy that, right? Like a long Saturday with a textbook would be like, oh, that's how it works. Oh, there is good evidence, you know?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think in general terms, the research we have around the the college experience and outcomes of homeschoolers suggests that, that there's not some, uh, you know, enormous deficit in any okay. particular area. You know, I, I think that, and this is just sort of my own uh, surmising on it, is that there there may be ways in which a lack of exposure and encouragement during K-12 in homeschooling uh, to particular fields might, you know, sway us or shift us, you know, understandably away from thinking about oneself mm-hmm. as possibly having a career in a certain area. Sure. Um, I mean, that's true regardless. You know, you can have a a horrible math teacher and then you're convinced right. you're never going to do anything in math. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that can happen in a public school. So so I think that students' conceptions of what they're good at and what they like can can certainly be at play in, in the variation of what types of subjects get emphasized no matter what their school is.
0: This week's patron-exclusive episode that just came out yesterday is a commentary to the Netflix Christian film A Week Away. It is about uh, Christian Camp. And I got together with the group I'm calling The Big Five. Listeners will recognize them. Myron, Sari, Sarah, Tripp, and myself. And uh, we poured some drinks and watched that movie. And recorded our thoughts in real time, as as well as an intro about our camp experiences and then an outro reflecting on the film and and various themes within it. Uh, It was very, very fun for us. I hope it will be fun for you to listen to. There's a video version and an audio version. You can either listen along with the movie or you can just listen to us talk uh, and mostly make jokes, but occasionally have some insightful things to say. So to hear that episode or other exclusive episodes, become a patron, patreon.com slash Dan Koch. There's a link in the show notes. Patrons also get access to the Facebook group, which is exclusive to patrons. uh, And I think that's actually the most valuable thing about the Patreon membership. But of course, there's the good feelings inside of supporting a show that you maybe care about, maybe find a little bit helpful. So appreciate you guys considering doing that. And let's get back to the episode here. I want to ask you. This is this is sort of a scholar slash personal question, and I I forgot to bring it up earlier. I would imagine that there are plenty of listeners right now who were hoping for a little bit more blood. You know, they've they have had maybe some rough experiences. There's some self selection, right? The the type of homeschooler who has broken with their family of origin in some way, the type of evangelical homeschooler, are much more likely to listen to this podcast than, say, the John Piper sermon podcast. And so, you know, I know that that's my tribe. Uh, You know, I get that. You're very measured. I would imagine some of that is academic professionalism and trying not to go beyond what the data says. And some of this is really interesting, actually, seeing where the factors are. Is that it? Does that explain your sort of calm and non-judgmental demeanor? Or are, are there? Has it f- shaped you in the way you think about it? I, I, wide open prompt there.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, you know I, what I will say is that my overall orientation toward homeschooling is I think it's uh, a, a legitimate educational choice, and I have seen and observed and researched families that are doing a wonderful job of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've seen the other side of it as well, uh, through my research and anecdotally. So, so what what I see my role as is trying to be that, I guess, measured voice in yeah. a conversation that is pretty pretty uh, filled with a lot of hyperventilated rhetoric, and yeah. and a lot of misrepresentation of the research, mm-hmm. um, particularly by advocacy groups, but not right. always. Yeah. And I guess part of it for me is, you know, I, I think it's important just from the vantage point of a scholar, but I think also that we need that type of voice in order to think about how to sensibly, uh, reasonably oversee and regulate the practice. And to me, at the, at the bottom of that is a real concern for making sure that we uh, protect the interests of children. And so that's right. that's I think motivates me as much as anything and wanting to make sure that, you know, I, it it doesn't make for, uh you know, as fiery a, a radio show. But, you know, I, I, I try and make sure I don't say things that I can't back up later.
0: Yeah, you are not just preaching to the choir here. You're injecting yourself directly into my veins and it feels great. I'm so with you on on all of that. Maybe let's maybe let's throw some red meat to the base here for a minute, though, and and push up some of these questions about bad outcomes. So, what are some of the, you know, they're they're sort of like the outlier worst case scenarios? I'd like to hear first. Let me ask you about that. So, what are some of those? And maybe some listeners basically have had this experience. What are what are some of the truly worst case scenarios here?
1: Well, in the realm of you know child neglect and abuse i mean obviously you go to the full extreme here of uh, yeah. just horrific you know stories of of children being murdered uh um and, and um you know abused and then and then you know a little bit farther on the spectrum is is educational neglect where there may not be any you know physical harm happening uh there may even be sort of a little bit of schooling going on but clearly it's a it's it's not a major commitment of the parents mm-hmm. and uh, you know, young people don't develop the basic skills they need in order to function effectively in society and and exercise their autonomy once they're uh, once they're an adult. So I think it you know it runs that spectrum. What we know is not enough right now uh, mm-hmm. in terms of issues around child abuse. We don't have comprehensive data. What we do know is that you know two thirds of reports about child abuse, uh, you know, suspected child abuse come from professionals and 20% of those uh, are teachers.
0: You're just saying in, in general, broadly in society. That's, right. So, we're That's maybe, right. so we're not, we're missing this primary group of report of mandatory reporters, right?
1: That's right. That's right. Yeah. I mean, certainly there are other mandate you know, other reporters, you know, right. community members, you know, relatives, what have you, right. and homeschool advocacy groups point to those as, you know, other ways that children's, you know, interests are protected. And and that's certainly true. Right. But as far as I can see it, uh, homeschooling is the, is the only way that a child can never have contact
0: with an adult outside of the home. Right. It's, it's a pretty perfect haven. If you are a bad actor.
1: That's right. And I think that's the point is that I don't think it makes families or parents any more likely to abuse. Sure. It's just for those ones that do. It's a lot easier to hide.
0: And there could be self-selection there. If you if you really have bad designs for your kid consciously or unconsciously, you might gravitate toward the homeschool model because you will have far less, frankly, government and, and public person and other adult interference in your family affairs.
1: Yeah. I mean, there was a a recent study in, in the state of Connecticut that uh, one third of parents who withdrew their children uh, to homeschool had reports of suspected child ab- abuse or neglect.
0: Oh, that's that's high. It is. It is. And but it's one state and it's you know, it's not. A big data set, yeah, suspected child abuse is not child abuse, right, and there right. are
1: all sorts of stories of ways in which that can sure. go uh you know be problematic, but I think it is an indication
0: of at your point yeah so this is one of the big concerns then is is basically neglect and abuse of various kinds,
1: right, and I think that you know to my mind, what's important is to think about what is reasonable for us to regulate. And how to do that in a way that protects the most vulnerable children, while also still providing flexibility for families to make decisions for their children about their education
0: without dictating a certain ideology or method. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. Well, well, speaking of potential neglect, Connor asked, uh, I was homeschooled with both of my parents working full time, and the school left to me and my babysitters. Is it common to homeschool, uh, even when both parents are working?
1: It appears that around 25% of uh, homeschool families have both parents in the workforce, okay. uh, according to our best data. Now, But
0: is that full-time workforce? No, not necessarily. So maybe mom works part-time or something like that, right? Right. And it, and it doesn't mean that you know parents are gone. It doesn't mean they're gone 9 to 5, right? Yeah, all day, right? That's right. Yeah. I mean, one of the families that I
1: profiled in my book, he worked full time away from the home and the mother worked in a church uh, office and the daughter came with her and did her work in the adjoining room. Uh, So, you know, there are all sorts of ways in which that can be navigated and oftentimes navigated effectively.
0: Right. Yeah. So it sounds like, Connor, your experience was not was not so standard, but but sometimes. Yeah. Here's a question from uh, my friend Brianna, who is a missionary in Myanmar. To what degree was homeschooling in the States a response to the desegregation of schools? And does anyone who is aware of that history, this might be harder to tell, is anybody who's aware of that history engage in it anyway, despite that knowledge? So
1: one of the things that is certainly well documented in the literature more broadly uh, in education is sort of this post-Brown decision explosion of private religious schools right. um, as a response to desegregation, having uh, arguably racist motivations. it It's not an area that I've studied in depth myself, but it it appears to be a more complex picture in terms of the growth of homeschooling. My colleague Milton Gaylor has written about it and assembled a, a, a range of examples of ways in which uh, there appear to be a number of other motivations that would suggest a more mixed picture um, in terms of that. I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I understand the second part of the
0: question though. I think she's asking like, if people are aware that the origins of the type of homeschooling they do was a reaction to basically racist anti-desegregation policies, would people sort of not be stopped in their conscience by that fact alone and say, well, there's a way just because it started that way, that doesn't mean it has to be that way now. I mean, that—that's how I would think that somebody might might consider or rationalize it.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's that's probably more a human psychology question right. than anything. Yeah. Um, I, I will say that that you know the, the categories that the National Household Education Survey makes available around motivations for homeschooling this broad category I mentioned earlier around uh, concern about school environment is certainly capacious enough to include. Uh, you know, racist consideration.
0: If they have that right, yeah, that's right.
1: And and they would obviously, you know, one would expect not necessarily articulate that specifically, but that would be the right.
0: <laughs> Yeah. Well, so there and there is. You mentioned that there are these other enclaves of sort of ethnical and racial minorities who pursue homeschooling, uh, as I understood it, to to help inculcate a sense of of culture and identity in their children. And Andrew asks, "What are the current racial dynamics at play in homeschooling broadly?" So maybe you can just speak some more about that.
1: Sure. I mean, it, it appears that that homeschooling, as I mentioned, has diversified, you know, over the past yeah. couple decades, in particular. But it's still. More white than the school age population more generally, it's probably around sixty percent of the best stats we have, whereas it's about uh fifty percent uh in the school age population more generally the The tricky thing is trying to figure out the growth of uh subgroups you know as hmm. you as you Drill down into smaller and smaller sample sizes the the error possibilities get quite a bit bigger. and, and what we find is there's a a wide fluctuation every four years as this survey is done uh, in terms of the percentage of, for instance, uh, Latinx uh, homeschoolers, you know uh, black homeschoolers, et cetera. so So it's hard to pin down what that looks like numerically. But there is a growing body of research that's exploring these motivations and practices. Uh, And as I mentioned, this this term educational protectionism emerged from that, this idea that public schools are oftentimes not hospitable places uh, for underrepresented students. And parents are determined to try and provide a type of environment that's going to be more supportive and celebratory.
0: Yeah, I mean, I could very much understand the motivation for like, hey, you know, son, I don't really want you to go, You, my black son, I don't really want you to go to a school that's going to like tell you all about how great Christopher Columbus was, you know, and like downplay lynching. Like that, you know, that that's very reasonable. I mean, it's partly content. I think it's also partly around, you
1: know, expectations, mm-hmm. uh, you know, yeah. things that are not necessarily even stated, but um, certainly come into play.
0: Right, there are there is uh and I don't know this research super well but it came up in a class that there is some work around racial differentials in the way that teachers naturally respond to children who interrupt class. And so like black boys for instance with the same number of interruptions get sent to the principal much more often, you know, that kind of stuff where if you knew that and you're a black parent, you're like, "Well, no thanks. I don't really want to, I don't want that bogging my kid down in their schooling." But that brings up another question, which is related to the socioeconomic status thing, which is that isn't homeschooling essentially a luxury item? Like it's a it requires in most instances some amount of time at at minimum that parents can spend that whereas like I'm actively looking forward to my kids being school age and getting like I'm looking forward to that. If I wanted them home, I would only be able to do that because my wife or I or both could spend that time right right
1: no i think that's right i mean i think that there are a lot of you know as we've talked about a little bit a lot of variations for how homeschooling can happen and so you can have a learning cooperative where maybe parents aren't quote unquote on the hook all the time and things like that particularly as they get older but but no doubt there is certainly to do it well there is right. a substantial commitment required if nothing else than to coordinate and plan it all even if you're not delivering the experience so to speak mm-hmm. so so you know whether we term it uh, you know a luxury it's certainly a, a a commitment that that requires certain resources um yeah. and yeah. and as a result it's not as easily available to some families as others
0: yeah so uh pivoting a little bit here something that's come up on the show recently Because of, you know, Trumpism and QAnon and the Capitol uh, insurrection is the relationship between conspiracy theories and evangelical subculture. Um, And Angela asked if you've explored or if I guess if there is any research really exploring the intersection of conspiracy theorists and homeschoolers.
1: Yes. Unfortunately, I can't give you a very enticing answer here other than to say, no, uh, I don't, you know, it's not something I know much about. I I think, you know, the only thing that I would point to, and and I don't think this is related to homeschooling specifically, but, you know, to the extent that a suspicion of expertise and authority is oftentimes a hallmark of, you know, conservative or fundamentalist uh, religious belief, you know, that seems to me to be a dynamic at play that we also see in homeschooling, but I don't think that there's a some sort of inherent connection there.
0: Yeah. I think that that, again, that Tara, Tara Westover book, I hope I'm saying her name, right. The the educated, the memoir is like, it's fantastic by the way, if you haven't read it, it's an incredible story. I'm speaking to you, but also the listeners, <laughs> Robert, uh, it's just very well written. And her family was just kind of off the reservation in, in a number of ways. And homeschooling was a part of that. But I think she's, of course, as we're talking about a, a kind of an outlier example and tough to draw much inference from stories like that anecdotally.
1: Right, right. I mean, I think certainly any context, whether it's formal homeschooling or not, where you can separate yourself from the mainstream makes those types, I would think, of you know, conspiracy approaches to life easier to navigate and to maintain.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Here's a question from Micah. How many kids with learning disabilities, ADHD, et cetera? Don't get diagnosed as a result of being homeschooled, uh, and you know, what are the what are the consequences of that? Basically, when they tr- when they transition into college or traditional high school, right? Well, the
1: the quick answer is we don't know. Uh, you know, for many of the reasons we've talked about before, uh, there is certainly a not insignificant percentage of parents who point toward the special needs of their children as reasons why they do homeschool. State law varies in terms of whether or not the local education agency, essentially the school district, is required to provide services for uh, homeschooled children with special needs. But oftentimes, uh, families can both homeschool and still receive services. Okay. And, and I think that, that one of the other things that parents of children with special needs who homeschool will, will say is that they are able to provide the type of customized individual instruction that their child was lacking. In an institutional school, that helps uh, them to address their child's particular needs. So, you know, yeah. I, I think that again, it really all comes down to the particular instance and, and what's going on in that family, and and how they're going about their homeschooling.
0: Close friend of mine, and I've I've met a couple other people since knowing what his job is. I've I've recognized other people mentioning it. He's a one-on-one educational helper, right? So. he's hired by the state or county or whatever to provide, you know, kind of a homeschool thing for kids with severe. I think usually he works with pretty severe autism. And so in a, in a good scenario, in a good homeschooling scenario, if you got an autism diagnosis or something like that, well, you know, all things equal, you're actually pretty well set up there to maybe give that kid what they need. Yeah, I mean,
1: I think so much of it comes down to, and and this is really what I tell parents who sort of ask me about whether homeschooling is a good idea and and what's most important uh, is it's really important to know your strengths and weaknesses as as a person, as a parent, as a potential instructor, so that you can not only tailor the experience for the needs of your child, but adjust according to the things that you're good at and the things you're not good at. Right. And and, you know, that type of self-knowledge, in my experience, when I observe homeschool families is critical. The ones that I that I have the most concerns about are the parents who have no
0: idea what they what they're lousy at. Is another word for that maturity, you know, or I don't know, accurate self-assessment. Like what could you put a term on that? Like, what are you looking for? What is it about a successful homeschool parent or parent combination What's that thing called? What's that virtue called that would correlate with good outcomes? It's an interesting question.
1: I, I you know, I, I don't have anything particularly fancy. I, you know, self understanding, self knowledge. Yeah. I think it's it's just that capacity to recognize, you know, w- what you're good at and, and what you need help with, and then you have a commitment to finding that help, finding that support, finding those resources.
0: Yeah. Okay. We're we're gonna kind of just do lightning round for the rest of the episode here and get through some of these are gonna feel like they aren't related. I'm gonna try and group them in as organic a way as possible. But you know, on that on that kind of theme, Austin asks, could public schools learn from homeschooling's self pacing model? I guess a, another question there is, is that feasible? But assuming it is, uh, he says it seems like grade level progression could be more fluid. I know kids who cruised through curriculum and started college two to five years early.
1: One of the uh, sort of f- famous uh, phrases in the uh, literature on on public school reform is this idea that there is this almost impossible to change, quote unquote, grammar of schooling, the way that schools are structured. And, and one of the right. most uh, typical uh, concepts there is, is, you know, the grade Age school, you know, and and so on. One hand, it's it is really resistant to change in that regard. But on the other hand, there's no reason why it can't. And there are certainly plenty of uh, examples uh, throughout the country of schools that don't pay that type of uh, attention to grades and and think much more about student learning outcomes and think about the ways in which they can. Uh, have structures where students can move more fluidly through a learning experience without being labeled in that particular way. So it's not only possible; it's 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 done, and uh, I think it can be done to great effect. Uh, but it is it's harder to keep track of things.
0: What what's your just what's your gut like? Assuming that the logistics could be sorted out, let's say some state, Connecticut's like we're going to implement this. Assuming that the logistics could be worked out, is your gut feeling that yeah, there's something about the more flexible structuring of homeschooling that would benefit more kids than it would harm. What do you, what do you think? Oh, I think so. Yeah, Yeah.
1: I I think. And, and again, it's, to me, it's not, it's not anything related to homeschooling per se, other than it's easier to do in homeschooling. Right. Um, I mean, you go back to the, you know, the origins of the one room schoolhouse. I mean, Mm. you know, kids K through 12, so to speak, all in the same room. And not that that necessarily always worked out great, but it was a model that we navigated before.
0: If it was good enough for Abraham Lincoln, Robert, it's good enough for me. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it requires it requires resources and
1: it requires teachers who can be flexible in terms of how they structure learning experiences. Right. Right. Um, You know, and that requires uh, a certain orientation to how we invest in education.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Similarly, Caitlin asks if there's any research or if you have any opinions on the homeschooling versus the, quote, unschooling model. And I don't know what that is. Can you tell us what unschooling is? Sure. Unschooling is a form of homeschooling
1: that, at its most extreme, would essentially not impose any expectations or structure on a child's learning experience. They would wake up in the morning and they would do whatever they wanted to do. And if they got uh, bored enough with one thing, they'd switch to something else. And perhaps the parent would suggest some other way to explore an issue or a topic or what have you. So that's that's the extreme. And I think it can move uh, toward sort of models of self-directed learning. And this even happens in conventional schools, too, where students get to decide the things they want to study and they want to go about doing it the projects they want to do there are all sorts of ways I think that it can be done really well but again it requires a a a sensitive teacher in the sense sensitive to how to ask questions that get students thinking that can point them in the direction of certain resources the data on unschooling is not particularly comprehensive or clear there there's at least some research that suggests that Outcomes, you know, in terms of typical academic achievement may not be as strong, but that also may be in part because those outcomes aren't really prized or emphasized by families who choose that model.
0: Hmm. I'm going to clump three questions together that I think, and you can answer it however you'd like, but there's definitely some overlap. Seth asks, what can homeschooling parents today do to avoid mistakes like isolationism and nationalism of prior generations? David asks, "What resources exist for people who may want to homeschool out of desire, out of a desire not to participate in the sometimes less than ideal public education system, but not necessarily out of religious or conservative desire?" So those people falling into that second category earlier. And Keith asks if there is established curriculum that isn't evangelical or fundamentalist or nationalist, particularly with regard to science and history. So those are kind of all really kind of one big question. I'm wondering if there's actually a website that I can link to that would give sort of a list of resources, but also I'd like to hear just sort of your reaction to that grouping of questions.
1: Yeah. I don't know of a, of a website that at least that I would uh, endorse offhand, uh, you know, that would provide sort of a comprehensive listing of resources. Certainly there are uh, on this spectrum of, you know, that we talked about before of, of super conservative religious curricula all the way to, you know, secular curricula, or at least you know, curricula that doesn't necessarily have a, a strong religious orientation. The most obvious examples are things like math curricula. Uh, mm-hmm. a number of those that homeschoolers right. use that that are are
0: pretty uh, removed from that. Why don't you just get a Howard Zinn's, a Children's People's History of the United States? <laughs> I bet I bet someone's made one of those. If you really want to go far left and, and, uh, you know, or whatever. Oh, sure. Yeah.
1: Well, and I think a lot of that, you know, that it, it's an eclectic approach typically that would, you know, mm. the, that type of family would probably that's what you would gravitate you towards grab They're not from different buy
0: a, places. Right. Yeah. That's right. They're not going to buy a curriculum in a box. Smart. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that,
1: that, you know, one name that pops to mind, Susan Wise Bauer is someone that has written quite a bit about homeschool curricula and that there are some religious, uh, elements to it, but it's it's certainly more um, capacious and accessible to a broader audience. So that would be one place to start looking in that regard.
0: Yeah. Here's a, a global question. Uh, Pascal asks, I'd love to know how the homeschooling movement within American evangelicalism exported itself abroad and influenced homeschooling in other countries. Is that something that you have research uh, or data about?
1: Well, I, I mean, I, this is sort of more my own impressions uh, from keeping a pretty close eye on how things have evolved over the last 20 years. Is, you know, the Homeschool Legal Defense Association, which, you know, as I mentioned, is the conservative Christian advocacy group for homeschoolers and the largest homeschool advocacy group in the world, has become increasingly involved in international. Uh, policy issues and uh, creating connections with various, uh, you know, local homeschool groups or national homeschool groups within uh, countries across the globe. So I think that they have recognized that this is a growing phenomenon. I, I wouldn't necessarily, and I don't think they would either. Uh, claim that that they're the reasons that you know that these groups uh, have sprung up or that you know interest in homeschooling has grown, but they certainly have made an effort to support and ally with a number of those groups. Mm-hmm. Um, you know I think that these groups and and this interest in homeschooling has cropped up across the globe for reasons in some ways that have been similar to the ones over the past twenty years here. It's not just religious, Right. Uh, You know, there there are ways in which parents feel as though uh, they want an alternative to what the state is providing uh, or even what a private school may be providing uh, for their children's education.
0: Yeah. Or imagine that a really good homeschool curriculum in a box, so to speak, could be learned by like rural families, you know, and not have to that maybe now they have like a satellite phone or, you know, they have a cell phone and they can actually get some PDFs and they don't have to take a two-hour bus ride, you know, to the to the nearest village or something like that. Like that could be quite beneficial.
1: Absolutely. And and one thing we haven't talked about that's directly related to this question around the growth of homeschooling is is the ways in which technology has enabled right. not only uh, incredible access to content, but also um, resources, support, um, right. you know, uh, networking. The ways in which parents can feel right. much more supported and enabled in this decision than they ever could before.
0: Spread it out a little bit. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, 30 years ago, the way that you got support was you went to the annual homeschool convention for right. your state and you went to this huge, you know, bazaar of, of, you know, curriculum providers at the booths and you figured yep. out what you were going to buy for the next year and you took it home and see you next year. See you next that, year. That's right. just not how it works anymore.
0: I wonder, too, um, because this – I think that this is a big – I think technology and especially the internet and access to a variety of stories, narratives, and really kind of media uh, of all kinds from diverse perspectives is one of – I personally think is one of the big factors driving an exodus out of more tightly controlled evangelicalism. And I wonder what you think about uh, is that rise of technology – is it actually kind of a natural corrective to some of the isolating tendencies of homeschool families such that a family today with exactly the same intentions as a family in 1990 might just fail? They're just more likely to fail at isolating their kid in the long run, which now that could either have good or bad consequences depending on what happens. But do you think there's something to that as well? I think so. Yeah, I
1: I think that uh, the surrounding broader culture intrudes in ways that that we certainly didn't have 30 years ago. And, and I think too, that's interesting. This isn't quite what you were asking, but I, I I would also point to the ways in which technological, you know, virtual connection has uh, leveled the playing field, so to speak amongst homeschoolers, HSLDA, for instance, you know, their voice is certainly still prominent, but there are a lot of other voices out there now. Mm. And there's a lot of other ways to network. And the sort of dominance of those types of groups, I think, has been lessened as a result of the ways in which homeschoolers can communicate directly with one another, whereas before they had to go through those organizational channels.
0: Yeah, you're, you're almost making me excited about the idea of homeschooling, which I had no intention of doing before this conversation. <laughs> um, we'll see about that. But related to the technology question is sort of the pandemic and lockdown and Nathan asks, given that essentially every child has been homeschooled for the past year, what do you wish, or I might say, what did you wish? What do you wish people had known? Uh, what do you wish people knew about what they're undertaking in this COVID season?
1: Yeah, I get asked this question a lot by journalists over the past year. Makes sense. Yeah. Uh, and and um, one of the distinctions that I always try and draw is that I, I would probably call it more schooling at home than homeschooling okay. in the sense that, I mean, a lot of times, right, it's first of all, it's a forced decision, so to speak. You know, it's out of crisis necessity. And second, a lot of times the parent is is essentially a, a, a tutor or an assistant to whatever curricula is being provided is a online teacher, by a school. Right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. So, so it's a, it's an appreciably different dynamic than homeschooling and, and oftentimes a different set of motivations. That being said, I would go back to the idea of you know understanding what you're good at and what you're not good at uh, when you work with your, with your child. Uh, you know, any of us who uh, have kids old enough to bring home homework, uh, even before the pandemic and, you know, get into a fight with them about how to do a math problem, knows that, you know, there are all sorts of relational dynamics at play when you're trying to be both the parent and the teacher. And those are complicated. Uh, and when they're not chosen uh, enthusiastically, they're even more complicated. So I think that that um, sort of recognizing those dynamics, and I think trying not to necessarily rep Replicate school is probably a good idea. Um, oh, interesting in these yeah. times,
0: you know uh, that kind of flexibility that you, you were talking about, and and these parents don't have the time. You you mentioned earlier that over the years, you know, a, a skill set develops basically, and a really a sensitivity to your own children and like how they work and what works for them, and especially if people are still trying to work, and now they have this, they they're just not going to be able to do that. But ideally you, yeah, it's like, it's almost like if it went on for four years, it could yield positive results. But if it's only a year, year and a half, no one's going to really get over that hump, that learning curve.
1: I I think it makes it a lot less likely for sure. And I think that what we'll see, one of the questions I get asked is whether, you know, this is going to result in an increase in homeschooling.
0: That's my next question. So go ahead, answer it. Yep.
1: I I kind of look at it as, you know, the new gym membership in January, where there's all the good (laughs) intentions and, uh, you know, your vision of of yourself, you know, fit and, uh, you know, there every morning. And I I just think it's really hard work. And I think that, you know, doing that type of long-term commitment is something that I think there will be some families who continue with it, but I uh-huh. would be surprised if most of them don't say We love our schools and
0: we're sending our kids. Uh, we love our teachers and our administrators. Can I try a riff on your um gym membership from from the way that many friends have experienced it? It's more like you sign up for your first personal training session, which you're really excited about, but they work you so work you out so hard that you throw up <laughs> and then you have kind of a bad taste in your mouth, quite literally about, and you're like, maybe I'm not going to go back to that personal trainer. That was rough, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, like I said, I think some families it'll, it'll end up being a great fit. You know, and I I think the other thing that I point out often is that I think that, that this year hopefully has underscored for all of us, how important our public schools are not only for, academic work for kids, but social support, everything. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, counseling, whatever, there are all sorts of ways in which it's a broader community. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I think that, that if nothing else, hopefully we, we end this pandemic with a greater appreciation for what our schools mean to not only our kids, but our communities.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's easy for me to say in that, you know, we live in a school district that has fairly good school ratings, you know, not we're not like the neighborhood everyone moves to for the schools but it's good everything's above 5 or 6 on great schools you know and i've i've been excited to be involved in the public schools as like one of the only ways that we will be naturally mixing with our physical community our actual neighbors right because my job's online my school is online at the moment my my future job won't be online i'll i'll, I'll be a therapist and so i'll i'll have clients and stuff in person but you know, it's just so much of our lives are, are lived with over text with our friends who don't live down the road. And, and there is something about local institutions that I am looking forward to being a part of the, my, my slightly budding enthusiasm for homeschooling from this conversation, notwithstanding. <laughs> Fair enough. There's two questions left. We, we did it. We, we did it. I just want to say, before I ask these, what, it, like, what an incredible set of questions
1: It really was. It's very thoughtful and and, uh, clearly a a lot of experiences behind those questions.
0: Yeah. I mean, like I pride myself on being a pretty good question writer and I feel like I lost nothing here. I feel like not not only did I lose nothing, I could not have thought of this many good questions and this wide variety. So I'm very, very proud of my friends and listeners. Um, Okay, last two. The first one is what legislation based on the research would you like to see introduced regarding homeschooling? And I I, I imagine you're going to talk about protecting children from abuse as that's going to be some big element of it. I can tell.
1: Yes. So, so again, for me, it's trying to find this middle ground where Mm -hmm. the regulations and oversight aren't so, uh, I mean, we could say there are all sorts of things that we want to protect against all sorts of things we want to ensure. I'm not convinced that we can do that with a, you know, set of state regulations. And I'm not sure that the cost in terms of the flexibility for parents to make decisions about what type of education their children receive is worth that. Hmm. So here's what I would say is that I think that all uh, homeschool uh, children should have to be registered or enrolled, so to speak, with the state. And nearly a quarter of states, that's not the case right now. We don't even so know that's... who they are.
0: That's an easy one. Yeah.
1: So that that to me is an obvious one. Yep. Uh, I think that uh, the second thing is that any parents uh, who have had substantiated claims of child neglect or abuse mm. uh, through child protective services, through fostering, what have you, uh, that they should not be allowed to homeschool.
0: Yeah, that's good. Uh,
1: cool. And then and then the last one is probably a little trickier, but, but I'll explain my rationale for it, and that is uh, annual basic skills testing. And the reason for this is because what I, what I try and think about when I think about regulation is what are the basic fundamental interests of children educationally, and what can we all agree on? Well, I don't think we can all agree on every child in a particular state meeting all the state standards right. for a, a curriculum, right? I mean, I think there's reasonable disagreement about a lot of that. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's reasonable disagreement that every child should have basic skills of literacy and numeracy. right? And so what I would advocate are basic skills testing annually that don't focus on content, but focus on skills. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't dictate curriculum in terms of the content that you study, right. uh, but it does insist that they learn basic computation skills you know reading and writing and the other thing that those basic skills tests do annually is that they require a child to show up somewhere outside of the home once Except a year. There's
0: that contact with another adult. Yep. That's right. So so
1: clearly it this is not a you know a perfect answer to preventing abuse or even neglect mm-hmm. but I think it's a it's a a very modest set of expectations. Uh there are expectations that the homeschool legal defense association is fiercely against. They don't want any regulations. So so it's an ongoing battle and, and not an easy one. But, but to me, these are what I would consider to be very modest, reasonable, common sense expectations. And, and even if a child does not pass a basic skills test, to me, that doesn't mean they shouldn't be allowed to homeschool. What it means is we need to take a closer look. Mm -hmm. And we need to have a conversation with the parents about their homeschooling. It could be that the child is facing all sorts of special needs and wouldn't be doing even as well in the public school.
0: Right. It just flags it, though, for somebody to look in, to look into it further. Right. That's right. And, And my
1: sense is, is that a critical mass of homeschoolers would be amenable to this idea with the idea that, you know, it's easy. My child's going to do fine. I just got to do this once a year and then they'll leave me alone. Mm. And then we focus our, you know, regulatory efforts on the, what I would suspect is a very small percentage of families that kids' interests are being neglected.
0: I just want to say, Robert, that you're giving us a masterclass here in civic engagement in the public square. Like I'm struck by how respectfully you've spoken about this main homeschool lobbying organization, given that I now understand that they are the primary actor that is fighting with you on some common sense child abuse prevention measures. (laughs) And I could understand someone speaking about them with quite a bit more venom and bite. uh, And yet I recognize that the way you are speaking about them is far more likely to win hearts and minds. And this is a kind of a meta thing. And it comes up for me often Because I I did a lot of work around political and social polarization in in previous years before this podcast, and I'm still quite interested in that. And so uh, just thank you for that. Thank you for instantiating that for us. I will be doing similar advocacy in the five to 10 year or so future around religious and spiritual abuse. That's my own budding area of research, which I've done very little. But I could learn a thing or two from you on how to engage with, quote, enemies, you know, legislation enemies or whatever it might be. Uh, so please accept that compliment.
1: Well, I appreciate you saying that. It's certainly the goal of mine is to is to create uh, relationships where we can have those conversations. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they're, they're an advocacy group and I don't begrudge them that. I mean, there's a right. role for that. And so it's just a question of, you know, can we find common ground uh, where we can both agree on, on basic interests of children and how we can go about protecting those.
0: Last question here is just what are some of these horizon questions Patrick asks that about homeschooling that research are, researchers are currently trying to answer? And he also asks, what's the most surprising thing you've learned about homeschooling during your research? And maybe you've already kind of said that and we just didn't label it as such.
1: Well, it, I, I suppose that they're, they're probably almost the same thing. And, and this harkens back to, to what I mentioned before about some of the methodological challenges. But mm-hmm. this idea – that there's so much back and forth in terms of homeschooling and conventional schooling and concurrent homeschooling and conventional schooling. So the the methodological challenges around that really, when I began studying this, I didn't realize that there was quite that much mixing and it just confounds all of our attempts to try and sort of pull apart what's going on here and what's responsible for what, but, but, that is i would say the the fundamental challenge and i think the other piece that we've been really bedeviled by over the years is long term outcomes you know it it's it's really difficult in in any field right to design studies where you can track uh long term uh, outcomes on on young people into adulthood and again to try and figure out well what is you know responsible for what in terms of how people have turned out. Uh, but that's that's a piece that I would love to see more information about. Uh, it's a rich area for not only study, but also for analysis and, and consideration.
0: Robert, thank you so much, man. What a great conversation. I'm going to have a link to your International Center for Home Education Research in the notes. Uh, anywhere else you'd like people to seek you out online? I'd say that's the main
1: place. I'm always, you know, glad to get emails and uh you know converse with folks and provide whatever resources I can. The the center website has a full compendium of all homeschool research that's published in English. So cool. uh and they can sort by categories. Uh so there's a lot of ways that you can access information, but if you can't find it, let me know and I'll see what I
0: can do. You, you didn't have to listen to this episode, guys. You could have just gone to the website and read through all the straight straight dope yourself. All right. Dr. Kunzman, thank you so much, man. Thank you. Appreciate the opportunity. Thanks to Robert Kunzman for joining me today. My editor is Josh Gilbert. He is available for more work. His email is in the show notes. Uh, yeah. Enjoy that patron episode for those of you who are patrons and please do let me know if you want more of those kind of Christian movie commentaries. I actually was just on an episode that came out yesterday of a podcast called Boys Bible Study doing a very similar thing. We watched a 90s short film called Crime of the Age. You don't have to watch the the film to enjoy us talk about it for a little over an hour. Um, I'll put a link to that as well in the show notes to that episode of Boy's Bible Study, which is a a show where they they watch Christian films and talk about them. And uh, I had a very, very fun time joining them for that episode. All right. I'll see you guys next week.